Welcome, welcome, welcome to After the Bell. I am still Corey Graves. It is my favorite time of year. It is spooky season. Crown jewel one week from tomorrow. And ladies and gentlemen, before we get there, next Friday, ATB 200. That's right, the 200th episode of this here sports entertainment podcast. I can't believe we've made it this far. Here we sit. 199 episodes and we wouldn't have made it this far without a little help from my Irish compadre, the fighting Irishman himself, Mr. Kevin Patrick. KP, where the hell are you this week? I'm in Kansas City, bud, this week, and uh, I've had some struggles today. I'm not going to lie to you. I've been chasing around Kansas in a storm here trying to find some internet, trying to find some ethernet, and I've got the dodgiest cables in the world off a lovely maintenance fella who hadn't got a Scooby-Doo what I was talking about. I was just saying, look, is there any chance of an ethernet cable to plug into the thingy on the wall? And uh, I'm in a different hotel room right now in a different hotel. At least that's, we're on let me board just say here. That, that's dedication. Allow me to, <laughs> to uh, issue a few kudos to you for changing the location of your hotel just to be here. That's dedication, my friend. Piss and rain, gravy. I can't even find an umbrella around the place. You know. Listen, beware, anyway. man. You're in. You're in Kansas. There's a big storm coming your way. Beware of witches, flying monkeys. Uh, there, there's a lot to lot that could possibly happen. And, it is and lack of internet. And lack yeah. of internet. Probably the most dangerous thing of all. But here we are. We've made it. Might I suggest? You track down a manager to speak to, a la Chelsea Green. Uh, be, we, we may not be able to help you with your technical issues, but we, the royal we, the you and I that populate ATB and the ATB faithful, we have a manager of our own coming your way. The brand new general manager of Friday Night SmackDown, Nick Aldis, will join the show here in just a few minutes. So much to get to. If you're not familiar with Nick's career, his journey to WWE, I think we're going to be really excited to shed a lot of light on where Nick came from. And Gravy, you know, before we get Nick on the show here, I want to get your thoughts on him so far as the GM of SmackDown, because for me, at least, it was one of those wow moments when he stood up, the charismatic approach, the authority that that exuded from his pores. And then when he decides to kick Adam Pearce out of the room and out of SmackDown, I was left with my jaw on the floor thinking that's a ballsy move, buddy. Second day on the job. I love it. You got to establish dominance every time, you know, there's a change in leadership in any walk of life, whether it be a sports team or a business. Very often there's a lot of things that are shaken up, all just wasting no time doing it. I'm excited for the future. Uh, we've seen a few glimpses of potentially a, a return to competition between the red brand and the blue brand. Uh, Adam Pierce, none too thrilled with Aldis's actions thus far, but I think it's good. I think it's exciting. And I think it's necessary with as red hot as everything WWE has been raw SmackDown that you have figureheads to focus on and run their own individual brands. It may lend itself to a little more variety so that you're not seeing the same faces on Mondays as you do on Fridays. You're not seeing the same circumstances. You may get some new match types. Some new superstars may earn some different opportunities under new leadership. I think it's a very, very exciting time. I can't wait to talk to Nick Aldis. But before we get to the future, Let's run it back to what went down this past week. Of course, big things happening on Friday Night SmackDown. Big things happening on Raw, but I'm going to hit close to home with you, KP. I heard Vic Joseph call it at least 35 times on Tuesday night. The biggest match in the history of Ireland. Yeah. Forget the Irish Civil War. Forget the Irish Revolutionary War. (laughs) Becky Lynch defending the NXT Women's Championship against Lyra Valkyrie. The most important struggle or fight that's ever happened in the history of your native land, KP. Yeah. And uh, we got ourselves a new champ. 
Look, forget the breakthrough that happened in 1916. It was all about NXT <laughs> Never mind Halloween that. Havoc. You know, here's the thing. Uh, Becky Lynch, we often call people trailblazers, right? But when you put into context, and I, I'm from five minutes from down the road from where Becky's from. I'm from five minutes down the road from where Lyra Valkyrie is from. Aoife is her name as well. Like, And I know what Becky went through from speaking with Becky to do what she's doing today, right? Becky's brother wanted to go check out this, this guy, uh, Finn Balor now, his gym out in Bray. That's at least a, an hour and 15 minute dark journey across Dublin, a, a, an hour plus to get across the city. You're paying for public transport. Finn had a, an old room with a mat in it that he started out with and he convinced people to come and and, and get involved in wrestling. What the landscape looks like now for Lyra Valkyria, even coming through in Ireland, is vastly different to what Becky went through back in the day. So when we call Becky Lynch a trailblazer, she didn't know what she wanted to do. But all of a sudden, once she started, she was extremely interested in this whole wrestling thing. And it latched onto her and she was incredibly successful at it over time. Very, for Lyra Valkyria, very different. But there's a reason she's looked up and idolized Becky Lynch her entire career. So to go and defeat Becky Lynch... And her family, Vic perfectly said this on commentary, what it means for her family. And I've, I've spoken with her about her family watching on from Ireland. And to see this success over her idol and, and Becky acknowledging her afterwards, you know, it was just a beautiful moment on NXT. I was delighted for her. Now, congratulations to Lyra Valkyria. I don't know Lyra very well. I've had a few interactions with her when I was working down at the Performance Center uh, trying to help out down there. I think, I think she's got a very, very bright future. But I also would like to warn Lyra that now the work begins. Yes, you did what many thought was impossible, where many have failed recently. We saw Indy Hartwell on Monday Night Raw come up short against Becky Lynch. Banger of a match, but obviously the man emerged victorious. Lyra has managed to wrestle the title away from Becky Lynch, but now the work begins, and it's not unique to Lyra. It's sort of an old adage in this business that it's oftentimes considered easier to become champion than to remain champion. Lyra is a superstar who hasn't necessarily had a chance to set the world on fire in NXT. Obviously, everybody's scratching and clawing for their own opportunities. There's a very limited amount of TV time. What we've seen from Lyra has been extremely impressive, but I would almost compare it to what we've been seeing out of EO Sky on Friday Night SmackDown as the WWE uh, Women's Champion in that she's so well insulated by damage control. When the bell rings, you know EO is going to provide the fireworks. You know you're going to have a great match but there still remains so many questions. Is it EO who earned the title herself or is she only champion because of Bailey and Dakota Kai? And that's not to say that Lyra did not accomplish this all on her own. There were no nefarious deeds that happened in the match at NXT. Lyra won the match fair and square, clean and simple in the center of the ring. But now the onus is on Lyra to make believers out of the NXT roster out of the locker room, and most importantly, the NXT fans that, oh my goodness, this is the woman who dethroned the man, Becky Lynch, for the NXT Women's Championship. That in and of itself is massive. But it reminds me of one of the most infamous title changes in the history of sports. And I'm not saying that I, this is where I believe it's going, but it could potentially be a James Buster Douglas, Mike Tyson scenario where Mike Tyson was Mike Tyson, the most dominant boxing champion on the planet Earth, one of the most feared men alive. And Tyson was off his game for one night, didn't train quite as hard, maybe rested on his laurels a little bit too much, was enjoying the, the fruits of his success, came in a little overconfident, 
And James Buster Douglas shocked the entire world to overuse the most overused adage in sports. Uh, And James Buster Douglas was all of a sudden the heavyweight champion of the world. And it didn't last long. His reign is not looked upon historically for any great reason other than the fact that he was the one that ruined Mike Tyson's reign. That's always a potential for any champion in any sport that's individually based, boxing, wrestling, sometimes martial arts. You look at UFC. The work begins now. And it also reminds me of a potential scenario one week from tomorrow where we will witness the hottest star in the game, L.A. Knight, challenging the most dominant force this business has seen in decades, Roman Reigns. I want to ask you, KP, it still seems like a bit of a long shot. Let's be perfectly honest. L.A. Knight has earned the opportunity. But I don't know if L.A. Knight truly has everybody believing that he's the one to do it yet. Yeah. What do you think? What do you think that the world looks like if LA Knight manages to do it? If he's the one to dethrone the tribal chief? Just even you saying that I'm already feeling the pressure that's going to fall on LA Knight to deliver. Given what Roman Reigns has been able to carry for year on year on year and the, the weight gravy. And when you're explaining to people and when you're talking about, you know, the pressure starts now when you're becoming champion, We all talk about like the target on your back and all that. That's a cliche, right? But Mm -hmm. it's true. Right. Aside from that, what other pressures fall on a WWE superstar when you become champion beyond the the target on your back? Maybe those, those aspects that aren't exactly quantifiable. Well, there's so much more that goes into being a champion, particularly a, a undisputed WWE universal champion or a world heavyweight champion or any, any women's championship, any main roster title comes with a great deal of additional work beyond stepping in the ring and going at, at your highest level for, you know, 20, 30 minutes a night around the country, the media, the travel, all of the other obligations, their opportunities. It, it all depends on how you look at the framework of it. Do you, have to do all these media appearances or are you able to do all of these media appearances? And Roman is in, sitting in such a, a comfortable spot right now. He picks and chooses and calls his shot and rightly so. Other side of the coin, you've got LA Knight right now. And to his credit, he is riding this wave for everything it's worth. LA Knight, I, I, was, I, I got a text from a buddy of mine at the Pittsburgh Steelers the other day who said, Man, you got to do something with L.A. Knight because the locker room is is saying his catchphrases right now. You no got to get us. A, Are you I serious? swear to God, I swear. Uh, a buddy of mine who writes for one of the newspapers in Pittsburgh, he said, "Is there anything you can do to to motivate the team?" I mean, L.A. Knight is is legitimately. When we say that, that's not a tag that you and I and Michael Cole came up with at the desk, or someone in marketing said, "Hey, let's start calling him this." L.A. Knight is on fire. L.A. Knight arguably the most popular superstar happening right now. If he manages to do it at crown jewel, I don't think anyone's going to be disappointed. I don't think anybody will be upset. I think it would be very, very exciting. It would, when's the last time in our business that someone has truly shocked the entire WWE universe by winning a title that they weren't supposed to. And I'm sure I could come up with a few examples. I mean, I'm going to throw Lyra and Becky up there. Yeah. Maybe not on the same scale as Roman versus LA Knight, but I don't know a lot of people who tuned in NXT last night, Halloween Havoc night one, and said, I think this is the night. I think Lyra is the one that's going to do it. I think we all expected a great match, but I don't know that anyone was believing in Lyra, and I think we could be setting ourselves up for a similar situation in Saudi Arabia. 
So I disagree with you totally when you say that nobody's going to be upset if LA Knight wins. All right. For the simple fact that we're there in the arena. You see it when Roman Reigns walks out. This bloodline story, as Paul Heyman said, what did he say? The third inning? We may be in the fourth inning by now. I'm not so sure. But this story has captivated the audiences like no other that I've seen, right? So I don't think people are willing to see that end. And maybe it's just simply another chapter where Roman's the chaser again. He's the hunter again. Maybe there's something else to this. But there's also that feeling with LA Knight. Like when you're younger, right, you, you fancy this girl and you're after this girl and then you finally get the girl. And you're like, eh, fair enough. Like <laughs> nothing special. I'm good now. I'm actually good. And I worry about that for LA Knight a little bit. In that everybody's behind him, everybody's rooting, and they're with him. They're part of the yeah movement. And what if he gets there and they decide, nah, all right, what now? I, I don't disagree with you at all. I mean, there, there's an old adage in this business that the money is in the chase, right? You yeah. want to see the, the, your favorite chasing the champion and coming up short and being denied so that they can come back even stronger. And maybe the timing isn't right, but maybe it is. Maybe LA Knight does manage to pull off the impossible, in which case, yes, it screws up all of Roman's grandiose plans for the record books, all the, the, the few records that are left that he hasn't overtaken already, which that would be a little disheartening and d- disappointing from a fan's perspective, I could see. But LA Knight's the guy right now that the people want. The people are clamoring for more for LA Knight. If he does manage to do it, you, you have a very valid point. Maybe a few weeks from now, people go, eh, well, we wanted, that was our guy, but now he's at the top of the mountain. I'll, I'll give you the perfect example. And, and I want to delineate this from what LA Knight is doing, but it's a, an example that I, I'm feeling off the top of my head. Yeslemania on the lead up to WrestleMania 30 with Daniel Bryan. Yeah. Daniel Bryan was a guy that the WWE universe believed in with their heart and soul and felt that he was never going to get his just due. He was never going to get the opportunities he should have. And the WWE Universe rallied in a way that we had never seen before. He goes to have this epic moment in New Orleans. I remember being in the arena with the confetti raining down in the Superdome. An incredible sight that still lives on. Every video package that we show about WrestleMania, you see the WrestleMania clip. It's epic, right? All-time great moments. I couldn't tell you anything that happened with Daniel Bryan's reign for the, it only lasted a couple months because once, once you beat the game, you usually put it on the shelf and you look to another game, right? If you're a video game guy or, or a comic book reader, once in a while you go back and read your favorites, but you want to know what's next. And once you complete the series, it's okay. Now, what else do we have? If LA Knight manages to knock off Roman and I, I'm not saying it's likely, I'm not suggesting it happens, but it is a possibility. It, it would have wacky repercussions and ramifications for WWE as a whole. Does business get even hotter? I don't know. I don't know. I genuinely don't because we all fancy ourselves experts. And you and I were privy to a conversation with a superstar who many people, including us, verbally <laughs> refer to as the greatest of all time, not to give anything away. We were in a conversation several weeks back. Do you know where I'm going with this? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Where he would say, man, I would love to give everybody the advice as far as how I would do it. But business is red hot right now. Business is better than it's been for a long, long time. Business is better than when I was sitting in the throne. Who am I to tell people what's right and what's wrong? Maybe this is this seismic shift in the world of sports entertainment that a lot of the world has already been, you know, ahead of the curve with 
it's fan driven now. It's creator driven. People have different ways of viewing things. Is now the time where LA Knight is the guy who was, for all intents and purposes, put in the position he's in by the fans. Certainly not by the decision makers. That's part of the reason why the fans rallied so hard. Is now the perfect time? Is the storm at a perfect juncture to where it's a one night opportunity to catch lightning in a bottle? But but what does the business look like? Maybe that's maybe that's the success. Maybe that's the, the secret sauce we don't know about. No one knows until it happens. This match is an anomaly, though, for, for two separate reasons, right? With the LA Knight chapter, the, the, the Bloodline chapter. LA Knight is someone who doesn't really give a damn about social media. He's not all sure. over social media. He's not about the clicks. He's not, he doesn't have 10 million followers. He doesn't even have a million followers. And I say that because he's a major WWE superstar, and most do. It's organic, right? The fans have made this organic, and he's along for the ride, and he's, he's embraced it, and he's running with it. The Bloodline story is also an anomaly because we live in an age, and you and I have talked about this, where long-term storytelling is difficult with social media clips living in isolation and being shared across the world in the millions. But yet this is a long-form story that's gone on for over three years. So this is a beautiful match in that regard, isn't it? That it's just so unbelievably different to everything we're seeing these days. It sure is. And it could be a one-and-done situation. Boom. Superman punch. Boom. Spear. LA night. Yeah, thanks for coming. That's a very real possibility. When, when the world wakes up on Sunday, everybody's favorite megastar could be the most recent victim to fall at the feet of the tribal chief. And there's no shame in that. That doesn't mean he can't dust himself off and try again or move on into something else different, maybe a little bit more suited. Maybe it's a, a United States championship reign or, or maybe it's something else entirely different. We won't know. No one knows. And I guarantee LA Knight doesn't even know right now because he's laser focused on the task at hand of becoming undisputed WWE universal champion. Either way, I, again, at risk of sounding like a broken record, because you and I say this ad nauseum week after week on this podcast, we say it on SmackDown. Business is booming right now. This is a beautiful, exciting time to be a fan of WWE. Uh, By the way, so much so, we just announced our first premium live event in Germany going down, I believe, in August of 2024. I just read the press release a couple days back when it dropped uh, the bash in Berlin. Man, there is so much to be excited about as a member of WWE, as a fan of WWE, and even, dare I say, as someone in a position of power, a managerial position within WWE, such as our guest at this time for the very first time. Please welcome the brand new SmackDown general manager, Mr. Nick Aldis. Mr. Aldis, first things first, congratulations on being appointed the new general manager of Friday Night SmackDown. But this is a role you have been preparing for for quite some time. It's been quite a journey to WWE, and we're excited to uh, chat with you about all things Nick Aldis on the way to running the show on Friday night. Welcome. Well, thank you very much, Corey and KP. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be here. It's um, it has it's been it's been an interesting journey with a, a lot of different twists and turns and a lot of chapters. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to delving into them with you guys today. It's such an interesting business, and we all run into each other all over the globe, sometimes years and years apart. As Kevin and I were chatting before we sat down to record today, and I thought back to the first time I think I met you, I was actually on a tryout in Orlando for uh, TNA at the time. And yes, 
you and I and several other people went out afterwards on the city walk. Uh, details get a bit blurry after that, but <laughs> sure. fast forward all these years and two completely separate journeys. Uh, you know, you, you did your thing. I continued to do mine. And here we are again, um, all these years later under the WWE banner. Uh, talk to us a little bit about how this all came to be. When I say all this, I mean, your, your role, your career, how you've got here. Uh, it, it was not necessarily a traditional wrestling journey. Yeah, I guess not. I mean, I suppose it, it did start in a traditional sense. Um, I, I I wanted to be a, a pro wrestler, you know, um, since I was about 13 or 14 years old. Um, and I, uh, I guess I've always been somewhat pragmatic. So I, even at that age, I sort of remember at least taking some steps to what I thought would help. I mean, the number one being, of course, I, I started lifting weights, you know, very young. I started lifting weights at like, you know, 12, 13. Um, and uh, that, because I think even, even, I mean, certainly by the end of high school, I was, I was telling my closer friends and peers that like, I'm going to, I'm going to have a go at pro wrestling. Like I'm definitely, I'm going to take a stab at it. I didn't know how, um, but I was taking steps towards that goal. Um, I broke in, uh, at 17 with, uh, with the Knight family who, um, you know, many people are more familiar with now after the, the movie made about them, they're fighting with my family, you know, um, sure. Wait, wait, Paige, Paige yeah. WWE, yeah, WWE right, superstar right. Paige's family, the, the, the Knight family, you know, yeah. holds a lot of water in the UK wrestling yeah. scene. My, my first day, uh, in a wrestling ring, uh, I remember, um, you know, Soraya being there, Paige, uh, as I think a, 11 or 12 year old <laughs> and she was already doing, you know, hurricane runners and <laughs> right, arm right. drags and hip tosses and all this sort of stuff. And, and, um, yeah, so I, I did break in pretty traditionally. They were not, you know, they were, they were old school. It was pay your dues and, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of calisthenics, all that sort of stuff that you've heard a million times before. And it was, you know, putting the ring up, taking the ring down and, you know, maybe you get, maybe they throw you a bone and put you in a battle Royal. And, um, as, as you continue to, to learn and progress. And, um, I, uh, that was, that was pretty much my, my sort of first in, and I did that for about a year. And at the time I was also going to another school. There was a, there was a, because the, the Knight family were, they would run camps. They didn't have a, a sort of regular, uh, training schedule. It was, it was more like they would do sort of intensive camps, um, because, their whole family were in the wrestling business. They were doing holiday camps, which um, you, 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 I know you know Graves is, is like a sort of bread and butter of, of the British wrestling scene. Um, right. And so a lot of the time they just weren't, they were busy. They were working, you know, they were doing shows. So you could, sort of, and, and again, you could get those other types of experiences as far as like helping out and being a sort of all around, you know, dog's body for them. But like in terms of actual, uh, practice and physical training. Um, I started going to another school down near London. So I would sort of drive, you know, three and a half hours, um, every Sunday and back and, uh, would, would train down there. And the great thing about that school that was called the Dropkicks Academy, um, is that because of its proximity to London, there were uh, a lot of different pros who would stop by. Uh, and sort of offer, you know, do just, you know, just offer some tips, help out here and there. And one of them was Doug Williams. Um, oh, okay. and, and so I first met Doug when I was like 18 and Doug at the time was, he was sort of, he was considered like the best 
British wrestler at that point. He was he was the guy going to Japan, going to Ring of Honor, and going all over the world, and and was respected and you know making a full time living as a wrestler and, and a good living. And uh, and so he was really hell of a revered. human being, by the way. Hell of oh, a human being. Just, I love Doug the best. Death. I've, I've been yep. a, been able to share a ring with him quite a few times. One of the people who you won't find anyone who'll say a bad word about him, and uh, he. He, by, by that point I'd been working out about, you know, four or five years. So I had a decent physique on me by then. And he was, and so he sort of took a liking to that and said, look, you're obviously dedicated and, um, you know, you just need some experience. He said, look, I'm going to, I'm going to try to get you booked, uh, with a promoter down here in the, in the, in the South who, who still did the traditional British wrestling, you know, in rounds and all that. Um, mm-hmm. his name was John Fremantle. And uh, so John gave me a call and said, Hey, Doug Williams, you know, said some nice things about you said I should book you. And so what, what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring you in and you're going to work with Doug. You're going to wrestle Doug. So I, you know, I'm like, what <laughs> this, this was, I think my Best case scenario. Yeah. Like probably my, I think it was maybe my second match, maybe second or third singles match. I'd been in some battle Royals and a couple of, you know, eight man tags and stuff, but, uh, and Doug just sort of held my hand through it all and made me look good. And, um, off the back of that, some of the some of the veterans who were there, including Doug, all said to me, "You're you need to you need to call Brian Dixon. Like you're you're his cup of tea. Like you're you know, and that's the best. That's the that's the number one place you can work at that time. Um, all star wrestling. Anyone listening, yeah, all star wrestling. Yeah. Brian Dixon. Uh, right. Rest in peace. We lost him recently. Yes. One of the greatest uh, UK, maybe the greatest promoter in well, UK I, wrestling history. I'd say without a doubt, certainly the most important uh, and very important in the careers of many, many guys who have gone on to have, you know, big, big careers, um, you know, in the WWE and beyond. Uh, and this was how old school Brian was. I'm sort of dating myself, I guess, cause I, this would have been about 2006, something like that. And, uh, Brian still didn't do email, you know, he didn't do like mm-hmm. online. So you had to pick up the phone and call him. So here I am just dialing a number and Brian answers. And I say, Hey, th- you know, this is Nick Aldis. And I, uh, I, you know, Doug Williams gave me a number and a couple of other people suggested that I should call you and, you know, try to, try to get on with you. Um, you know, if you take a look at me and he just goes, how tall are you? And I said, six, four. He said, okay, do you look good? I said, I think I look okay. You know, <laughs> is that, how do you answer that? Right. And then, uh, he's like, okay, good. Well, uh, all right, well come to Skegness on Tuesday and pack for the week. Okay. See you then. Good man. Bye. Um, okay. Pack for the week. What does that mean? So I do, I get all my gear and, you know, pack for the week. And, and, uh, he, he, I guess he liked enough of what he saw and, and that was it. I was wrestling six days a week on the, on the Butlin circuit with all-star and just, that was such an education for me. So I just sort of really, that, that really informed a lot of my early years in wrestling. I was sort of thrown in at the deep end a lot. So, so what was the, what was the UK scene like at that time period? Because I think I started going over in about 08 and yeah. it was sort of, there was a lot of, a lot of the, the independent scene seemed to not have great things to say about each other. It seemed to be sort of an unhealthy business and they were very reliant on American talent coming mm-hmm. in. And, and there were those tribute shows, which I've never seen yeah. or heard of. Um, oh yeah. Not necessarily as glamorous as you might've hoped. Uh, obviously it's gone through a Renaissance since then we had N- NXT UK and, and the UK yeah. business is much stronger, but at the time, what did that look like? What were you breaking into? Well, yeah, it was, I think to me, there was a, there was a real sort of divide. Um, there was, there were some independent promotions who were starting to 
get more adventurous with their branding and their marketing and their presentation. Like the like FWA at the time was the yeah, sort Alex of Shane, right? Yeah, well, they were sort of the cool sort of independent promotion. They were the ones who were making video packages and actually sort of invested in some decent lighting and video screens and things like that. And they would bring over, they brought over AJ Styles, I remember, and Jerry Lynn. And like we, we were, the British scene was starting to, you know, branch out, but there was a bit of a, a bit of a culture war between those guys and the traditional, you know, the, the promoters the and, the, and the wrestlers that had sort of come from, the the ashes of the world of sport era, right? right the sort right. of traditional like Max Crabtree, and obviously Brian Dixon was one of those promoters. But to Dixon's credit, he had embraced the fact that uh, wrestling was changing. He saw that American wrestling had changed the game, right? And it was you know predominantly the reason why British wrestling came off television. I, you know, I, I know people like to blame Greg Dyke at ITV and say, oh, he pulled the plug on it and yada, yada. But the reality is, is that the television show didn't move with the times. It was still just like, they're sort of like a time plain. Right. Yeah. If you, if you compare like, uh, what, what was happening in 1987, uh, on British wrestling television versus, you know, compare it to the WWE as a television product. I mean, it's just like, it's a complete two different worlds. Uh, right. You know, now you had rollable Mark Bronco. Can you tell us what, what would be differences? Yeah. Production value. They, you know, they, they, they hadn't embraced sports entertainment. They, they were sort of just resting on their laurels of like, Oh, good old rough and ready wrestling. And it was like, we had great talent. There was rollable Mark Rocco and there was guys from Japan, like Sammy Lee and, you know, and people like that who went on to be, be Jushin Thunder Liger. And obviously there was dynamite when he was back and forth before he went full time with the WWE and people like that. I mean, there were some amazingly innovative performers, but the product, the television product wasn't, wasn't up to snuff. And so what Brian Dixon did was he just sort of went, okay, this is what people want now. They want American wrestling. So that's what he started marketing. Like he just started taking like, okay, it's, this isn't, you know, this isn't family British wrestling. This is American wrestling. Like to make that distinction. I mean, there was shows were advertised as American wrestling. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Make it almost seem exotic. Uh, yes. Yes. And so those guys, and the irony was that the shows that were marketing themselves as American wrestling were actually mostly run and, and populated by the sort of, the guys who had grown up and been in the traditional British sense, you know, uh-huh. Blondie Barrett and all this sort of thing. So, and then the ones who were actually more influenced by American wrestling, jumping ahead to when I broke in, they were all influenced by the WWE course. And, you know, to a lesser extent, WCW and ECW. And certainly ECW informed a lot of the independents as far as like trying to do that kind of, we're the underground, we're the, we're the alternative, like, we're, you know, we're going to build a cult fan base. And right. I, know, I think you still feel that today with a lot of independent promotions. They, they sure. try to capture that same spirit that, that Paulie had with, with ECW. So uh, it was, yeah, like you say, there was, there was, there was contentious, you know, it was sort of, and, the, and there was a lot of, there was a lot of uh, contention between what people called the guys with the firm, which was all-star wrestling, right? Okay. If you were full-time with Brian, it was like you were, you were, you were part of the firm, okay. you know, because okay. you were sort of largely disconnected from the independent internet sort of scene. You know, the, the, the internet didn't really care what was happening on all-star shows because it was just, you know, what you see is what you get, what, what Brian would call cowboys and Indians, right? Good guys and bad guys, you know, send them home happy, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, they never mentioned the fact that they were all sellouts. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. 
you know, and they were, and it was like the most consistent business by far. Uh, and, and a great experience for me because I got to work with any number of, of really experienced seasoned pros and there would be Americans that would come over. Gangrel was the first like name guy I ever got to wrestle. And I was just, you know, it was just it was fantastic. PCO, he would come over a lot. And so I've known PCO since I was like a kid. And, um, you know, there were, there were lots of guys like that. And it, it, it was just a, it was an interesting time because there was a, like I said, it was a cultural shift. And, you know, I think that my generation and I'd sort of, even though I'm a little bit younger than, the guys I'm about to mention, I think like that first wave of guys who got picked up by WWE. So like Seamus, Wade Barrett, Drew, um, you know, and then, and then there were others. We, I was a little bit younger than those guys, but, but we were all sort of collectively, I think part of this group that looked at wrestling differently and said, no, we, we don't have to be content with just making a living in Britain. Like, like there was definitely this mentality prior to that. And obviously, look, there were exceptions like Regal and Dave Taylor and Fit Finley and, but, you know, and Davey Boy, obviously, and Dynamite. But the, but, you know, the prevailing mentality with a lot of the British wrestlers that I came up with certainly was that like, oh, well, they just have, there's only room for like one token British guy. Right. You know, you have to sort of no, you've got to sort of no, that's a pipe dream. Don't 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 think that you're gonna go over there. Like that's you know, that's silly. Like think, you know, think, you know, you've got to just think about trying to be a full time wrestler here and and you know. Uh and I just think that uh, you know, I think our generation just didn't <laughs> just didn't buy into that. We just we just went, Why not? Like it's you know, the world's getting smaller and we you know, we we were informed by that. We wanted to you know, we we felt like we could make a splash on the world stage. It's amazing to me, when we spoke with Santos Escobar, Nick, just a few weeks ago, he talked about the influence of WWE in Mexico and the, the Lucha Libre style and what he was seeing from Mexico in America. I'm sure it was the same with you when you had an opportunity to watch WWE at the time and you're watching Vince McMahon wave his magic wand at what this was, this pageantry, everything, the entertainment factor of it all. And, and there was probably that itch with you going, yeah, I want a bit of that, you know? Uh, look at the WWE was wrestling to me, you know, right. if you're a kid in, in the nineties in Britain, it's like the WWE was the wrestling that you watched, you know, the, like WCW had a presence, but it was just, it was a blip on the radar compared to WWE's presence, particularly when it came to like branding and marketing and everything like that. I mean, everybody at my school knew all the wrestlers, even if they didn't watch it religiously. You know, the, the WWE characters were just, they were pop culture, right? Like, mm -hmm. and so I think Nick, when you, everybody was going around school in Ireland doing DX. Yeah. Right. The attitude era was, a, a whole, again, yeah. a whole different ballgame. But I'm talking about even when I was in primary school, like you know, Hogan's it was like, Bret Hart, Warrior, right? like Bret Hart, yeah, yeah. Bret Hart was like my first hero. Like I, I thought about Bret Hart the same way I thought about my favorite football players, you know, like Ryan Giggs and people like that. Like I thought of Bret Hart, I was like, he's cool and like girls like him and he's so slick and he's the best, you know, and like, I want to be like that, you know, like, I, yeah. like he was cool. He wasn't this sort of crazy, you know, like I, like I remember, I remember sort of seeing Hogan and understanding that he was a huge star 
but like I, I didn't, and I, and I don't mean this as a slight, but it wasn't. He didn't seem cool to me. Like Brett was cool. Yeah, right? I, like, I know and, what you mean. And then, yeah, yeah, and then like when then obviously when the attitude era comes along, it's like Shawn Michaels and DX and like you know who who was in my school who was who was considered like the coolest wrestler was X Pac. Really? Like, yeah, everybody thought X Pac was so cool. You know, because he and I, and, he, and if you think about it, he was because he had that because of the way he talked and the way, uh, his his demeanor and everything. It was like. I thought that I never think that Sean Waltman really gets his flowers as far as like how much of an impact he had on wrestling being cool. I, I would agree with that. And I've heard it said, you know, multiple times throughout the years that, that himself and, and even Holland Nash uh, should be given a degree of credit with sort of infusing a lot of pop culture into the wrestling business, particularly like the hip hop scene, you know, coming out Absolutely. with the Tupac bandanas and, and to your point, X-Pac speaking the way he did and using some street slang. Yep. That was kind of the first exposure. I think a lot of wrestling fans had to like, Oh wait, there's other stuff. That's, that's more, uh, it's cooler to your point about Brett than, than just, you know, this larger than life character. Yeah. They took, instead of instead of sort of creating their own lexicon and and sort of uh which they obviously they did but they also took stuff that was already in the lexicon and and enhanced it to an even bigger degree and sort of informed like sort of the wrestling world of it because there was this stigma with with wwe fans right like it was this of oh you're a wrestling fan like oh you must be a you know low class you know sort of yeah, redneck yeah. yada yada uh and and then suddenly it was like all the kids who had who were making fun of me three years ago for, for liking wrestling and now we're wearing like DX shirts or, you know, the, mm. you know, you're suddenly throwing around like jabroni and, you know, the, the rocks <laughs> phrases and stuff like that. So, I mean, it was, yeah, it was an interesting time. And obviously coming off of that. Um, so then by the time that I, you know, break into the business, the internet culture had really taken hold. Mm -hmm. Like we, you know, we were, we were, you know, we were looking at, like what people were saying on the internet and message we were boards. aware of, yeah, check we were the message aware boards. of, yeah, <laughs> see if they yeah, like my we match. Were, yeah. And we were aware of like, Oh, there's, you know, there's something going on behind the scenes and this is fascinating and I want to know. And you know, the books had started to come out. So now we were all, now we all thought we knew what was going on and you know, we thought we knew what we were talking about, which of course you know, we all have to <laughs> deal with now on the other side of that coin. God love them. Yeah. Yeah. But um, you know, it's, it's, it was, you know, it was an interesting time to get into the business because I was sort of, uh, I was brought in and broke in by people who were very much of a different time, but sort of coming in and and embracing and and sort of learning, you know, kind of on the fly this new this brave new world that was sort of emerging in front of us. So, so you've achieved a certain level of success in the UK, uh, and eventually you find your way to the United States. How did that all come to be? And forgive me because I've heard this tale and I don't remember it accurately. Were you some semblance of an American gladiator type guy? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Let's, so, let's get into that. So I'm full time with, uh, with all-star wrestling at this time. This was 2007. Um, the only break that I took from, like I said, that, that schedule was six days a week. And most of the time that was usually at least one double shot. So you're probably wrestling like at least seven times a week, sometimes as much as 10. Um, because with the camps, there would be double shots and stuff like that. And, and, uh, and my, my brother spent were, a lot of time there. I never yes. spent time with Dixon, but my brother spent several years yeah. there. I know all about so, it. So, you know, you, I'm just... You're, you're separated from the outside world. You're just grinding and grafting and, you know, your whole life is just, you know, putting the ring up, wrestling the match, taking it down, 
going out, getting drunk, you know, getting in the car, going to the next town, on and on and on. Um, but a wonderful education and, and, you know, made lifelong friends uh, from, from that experience. And, you know, like I said, that education is, you know, invaluable, right? And, uh, but somewhere in there, I did take, the only break I took was to go to Missouri to go train with Harley Race. Okay. Harley would do a, he would do a camp. So I, and I wanted to go do that. Um, because it was in conjunction with pro wrestling Noah. So it was, I, I looked at it as the opportunity to learn from Harley, but also to learn execution from the Japanese guys who were sort of known as, as the sort of pinnacle of particular execution. Uh, and, and so I went and did that and, and I wanted to come to America, you know, even before wrestling, I had the American dream. Like I, even as a kid, I remember, you know, my parents always tell me this now, they said, we knew that one way or another, you were going to go to America. Like everything, all the, everything American was always what appealed to me. And, um, you know, I just had that sort of, I had that mentality and, and KP, you can probably touch on this cause I don't think the, the British and Irish, um, mentality is that far apart on this particular thing, but it was like, ambition is a funny thing in, in yeah. British culture. Like it's okay to have it, but, but you have to keep it to yourself. You know, 100%. you can't, it's, you're, you're, you're not like, if you were to say, I'm going to, I'm going to shock the world. I'm going to go and be a star and I'm going to go do this and this. People would be like, all right, calm down. You know, like, <laughs> it, it, and you know, there's, it's, it's, it's not the same. Like America has that sort of can do attitude, right? Like you we, can do we, whatever we, you want. Which is why we've brought it up on the show here before that, you know, Drew Seamus and I had a chat one day about promos and how, you know, when you're from Ireland or you're from the UK, you're used to, you know, if you're the loud mount in the room, you're given a smack pretty quickly. You're, yeah. you're, you're beaten down to size. Where, and then you get the likes of The Miz, you know, and you get these other characters that are just so unbelievably good and comfortable on the mic from an early age. Um, and it's not the case where we're from, you know, you kind of you kind of keep to yourself a little bit. And if you're cocky and if you're arrogant, you're going to get shut up pretty quickly. Yeah. And, and, the, and promos is such a great point because promos is the thing that drew me in more than anything. Right? Really? Yeah. Is that something you well, ever struggled with early on? Or nope. did you know from then that that, that was what you wanted to do? Uh, without, without patting myself on the back too hard. Uh, verbal skills was certainly the thing that I got the quickest. Okay. <laughs> um, and, and, I, and it's actually a, that's actually a great segue into continuing this story. So, um, some friends of mine, the UK pit bulls, who you probably, you, you probably ran into them. Guys, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. You probably I ran know. into them on your travels. Yep. They were big. So they were a big in, independent act you know, mm -hmm. at this time. And they were two super heavyweight guys, like one, you know, one's about 350, the other's 500 pounds. And they you know, and, and, uh, really great guys, super entertaining. Yeah, sweethearts, sweethearts. Yeah. Yes. I, yeah. I still stay in touch with them to this day. And, uh, they were on with a few acting agencies and, okay. you know, to get little bit parts and stuff and be like heavies and all that sort of thing. And as a result of that, this casting call had come in and they sent it to me because they said, because the casting brief had said, uh, might suit a pro wrestler because it was some ad lib involved. Um, but they also speci specified that they wanted the guy to have like a sort of action, action hero sort of physique. So they went, well, that's us out, you know, but you should go for this. And it was a, it was a, a live stunt show at the, um, at the Birmingham NEC, which they would do this sort of motorcycle fest every year. Okay. And they did this, one of these, it was this live stunt show that was sort of Mad Max, type of thing, right? We had all these like stunt riders and they would do like the Thunderdome and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I basically right. played this guy who was sort of the, you know, the guy running this underground, you know, thing, right? But considering I'm making, you know, 
50 quid a night, maybe. <laughs> right. It, like the pay for this was, I think like two, 2000 pounds for the oh, week. Yeah. So I'm like, Oh yes, you know, absolutely. Right. And it's like, and I get to stay in the same place for seven days. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so I'm taking a pay cut for that. Wait, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so, so I go do it. And the, the guy who directed it was a guy called Carl McGee. Uh, and he was, he, he liked what he saw. He came to Butlin's to basically, to, and he said, see if you can see if they'll let you do a promo. Like, I just want to see how you are like talking to the crowd. So I go to Brian Dixon and say, Brian, is it, is there some way? And I told him why. And I said, is there some way I can, you know, get, get the microphone and, and say something? He said, oh, well, yeah, we'll figure it out. So I just like, you know, I said, I will challenge you to a tag team match or something like that. Right. So I sort of flesh it out a bit to try to really like, and luckily the Butlins crowd are like the easiest crowd in the world. So yeah. this guy sees it and goes, oh, this guy knows how to control a crowd. Uh, and so I get the gig and after, once that's done, he says to me, look, I have this little agency. I mostly deal with stunt guys, but, uh, every now and then something comes up for someone like you. So if you want, I'll sort of put you on the book. So I went, sure. Okay, great. I never heard anything about it again until a few months down the road. He gives me a call out of the blue and says, Hey, they're bringing back gladiators. Can you swim? I'm like, yeah, I can swim. I was a good swimmer, actually. Interesting like, requirement. <laughs> yeah. He's like, can you swim? Are you afraid of heights? I'm like, no, I'm not afraid of heights. Like, I can swim. I, you know, and he's like, good, because uh, I got you an audition. You go next week. Wow. And they had a big open tryout. It was at the Woolwich Army Barracks down in London. And um, fortunately for me, because at the time I was wrestling like six days a week, my cardio was really good. Right. And the first thing they did was send us on this assault course, like a, like an army assault course. And right away they cut like half the guys right out of the right out of the gate. Cause I went to this, I was I think 20, maybe 19, 20. I, I went to this thinking I won't get this. Like I'm not, I'm not a grown man yet, you know, like they're gonna want right. Cause I mean, there were guys at that audition who I recognized from movies and TV shows and muscle and fitness and stuff like mm -hmm. that. I was like, no, I'm not gonna get this, but it'll be worth it'll be a fun experience. And, but fortunately, because they just, they, they killed us on this assault course. And I, like I said, my wind was so good at the time from wrestling every day that I just, I ended up doing well in that. And they cut half the guys immediately. So, right, you guys are out. So now I'm sort of looking at it going, well, well, now I've got a one in five chance. Like maybe I, okay. And then the next thing they did was, and I used to hear, and the, again, this is so funny. So they, I would hear, cause a lot of my peers were going to WWE tryouts at this point. And I hadn't gone yet. I hadn't got one. Um, but I, but enough of my friends had had them where they would tell me how it would go. And they said, Oh yeah, they'll make you go in the ring and they'll make you work a match and blah, blah, blah. And then as soon as you get out of the ring, they'll put a camera in front of you and say, talk right now, cut a promo. Right. So I'd already been sort of mentally preparing for this because they did the same thing at the gladiators auditions. They, uh, they, after the thing, they suddenly came, they, they went away for a few minutes, came back with a camera and a mic and went, okay, talk, go. And so many of these guys just completely shut down. You know, they just did, they weren't prepared for this and they're like, uh, uh, you know, like just screaming and just, you know, just being just, just, you know, just not, not imaginative at all. And I had a sort of memory bank of sort of go to generic promos. Yeah. So I just picked one of my holiday camp, you know, promos and just, you know, I went, oh, when I look over here and I see the teeth on this guy and I see the hair on this guy, whatever it is, right. Just, just typical. And right away you could see him go like, oh, okay. Like, you know. And, uh, that, that was it. That was what got me the, that was what got me the gig. They went, you know, and, and we, we get in and they go like, okay, this was, for, uh, they said, okay, one of you guys needs to be the bad guy on this show. 
Like, we know that it's not necessarily what you would want. And I'm like this. So my hand shoots <laughs> up. No, me. everyone else is looking. All the other guys are looking around going, oh, I don't want to be a bad guy. And I'm like, ah, me, right here. <laughs> <laughs> like, and so they were like, oh, really? Thank God. And I went, yes. And so I just did like Heal 101 and managed to get, uh, you know, I said I sort of got the most out of that opportunity that I could, right? We did two seasons of that show. By the end of the first one, I'd been approached by Dixie Carter to sign with TNA. and I you know, signed right away. As far as my recollection of news, I I remember reading that you were coming to to TNA at the time and the way it was presented, or at least the way I understood it was you were not a wrestler and that they were taking this gladiator and training him to be a wrestler. Right. Uh, So so all this stuff that you've told me up to this point, I was pretty much unaware of aside from, you know, the the Dixon stuff. And unfortunately, um, I should have, pushed harder, I guess, in the beginning to dispel that narrative because that narrative did follow me for oh, okay. quite some okay. time. So I wasn't the and only one. I was going, man, no, I should no. probably just read and it. It, it only occurred to me um, after when they so they gave me, the, when I started TNA, I had this horrible gimmick. They give me this Roman gladiator helmet. This was a perfect example of sort of the left hand not knowing what the right hand's doing. So mm-hmm. they, somewhere between Dixie signing me and saying like, we, I, I want to push this guy because he's, you know, the UK market was very important to them and blah, blah, blah. And the creative team, they just hear oh, a guy from gladiators. Right. You but they think like, yeah. <laughs> so and our next thing I know, I show up and I'm, you know, I'm given this Roman gladiator helmet and all this. And I was just like, Oh my God, this is <laughs> like, it, not only am I, I mean, again, being thrown in at the deep end, I'm not ready for, television. I have no experience of television whatsoever. Um, but they give me this character that's just, you know, this DOA, right? Never going to, never going to work. And thankfully the thing that saved me was that one, I didn't complain and two, that they realized it wasn't working either. So they put, they brought Doug Williams in and said, we're going to make you guys a team. We're going to make you the British invasion. Um, and that, but that was also when Doug was the one who started telling guys like, no, no, he was a wrestler. Like he was a wrestler before I, I, you know, I had one of his first matches and they was like, Oh, we thought he was just like some guy from a TV show who like Dixie, like plucked out of obscurity and made a, made a wrestler. So I had all this heat that I didn't know, you know, like, because obviously like as uh, outsiders are typically not, you know, there's always that thing of like, Oh, you're not even a wrestler. You haven't paid any dues. You You haven't done anything. You haven't taken any bumps. And I I was going like, no, I have have paid my dues. Nowadays you just check someone's Instagram to see what their life had in store. You know, like none of that back then. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and I, and I remember talking to Dutch Mantel cause Dutch was one of the first guys to sort of started to see that I knew the business, even if I, even if, even though I was very green, like he could, you know, and he sort of started going like, so what's your background? You know? And I told him and, and he goes, huh, well, they didn't tell us that, you know? <laughs> like, and, and I said, so I sort of came from, I always say that all-star wrestling was like the last real territory Right. Because it was like you wrestled the same places every week, round and round, you know, and you were full time. And and you got to learn different towns responded to different things and you had to play different ways to different crowds. And it wasn't just paint by numbers. I do this, 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 they react. You got to learn KP very similar to a conversation that you and I had with a particular goat a few weeks ago about how no two wrestling crowds are the same. And that's such an important thing to, to learn and realize and know how to work within and manipulate if need be. 
Yeah, you would look forward to you would you would see you would see where you were going on on, on the on the schedule, and you would look forward to certain places because you knew like, oh, I got I. I, I know how to get them, uh, you know, and th- th- those, that's an easy crowd or you'd go somewhere and say, Oh, this, you know, these ones are a bit tricky. You have to do more of this. You have to do more of that and all that sort of thing. Yeah, for sure. Well, Nick, I hate to do this to you, but we are pressed for time. So rather than dive into the next yeah. middle part of your career, of which I promise I will have you back when we have a little bit more time. <laughs> this is going to do like a weekly segment with Nick Aldis. I love sorry, this. I, I, no, sorry, no. I, got, I went, I, I went way into the weeds. Hey, listen, that's, that's preferable to someone who sits there and gives you yes, no answers. I like getting, getting lost in the weeds a little bit, but fast forward again, I promise you, I'll have you back. Cause I want to discuss a lot of that. Cause I know you had a chance to work with some pretty incredible minds and talents and greats throughout the business prior to your WWE tenure, but how the hell did this all come about and why now? Well, um, like a lot of people I've been, you know, I was knocking on the door at WWE for years. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, and for whatever reason, you know, the opportunity just, just, just wasn't there. And, um, finally, uh, at the end of last year, I, I, decided to um to give my notice at my previous place at the nwa and say okay you know it's sort of now or never i'm i'm i'm, I'm gonna try to uh reach out to wwe and i reached out to triple h um and between you know between then and and when i finally came in i had some conversations with bruce pritchard and it was sort of sit tight you know maybe there's something we, we'll, we'll we'll think about it and you know, and I stayed busy. I did had another little run at impact that was, that was really good. And I thought was very productive. And, uh, then, uh, the opportunity came in the form of being a producer. Um, and I was very, very grateful for that opportunity because uh, I've enjoyed working behind the scenes, especially at the NWA. I wore a lot of hats there, mm-hmm. um, for the last few years. So I really sort of got into the, the, the process of, uh, producing and, you know, thinking about things on, you know, more than just the surface level. Um, so I was very open to that being the opportunity and, and, you know, and, and that being it. But, uh, I was very, very grateful when, um, Bruce pulled me out of a meeting. I was sat with you, actually, we were, we were catching up and then Bruce pulled me out of the meeting. It was, and he said, uh, we've, we've got, we've got this idea. We've, we've got something in mind. Um, you know, and then a few weeks later they called again and said, uh, general manager of SmackDown. And I just went, love it. Great. Like, give it to me. Right. Opportunity comes in many shapes and sizes. And, uh, you can't, you can't spend time dwelling on things that didn't happen for you and, and, or why, uh, or what I, what I always say is that, um, you can't control what opportunities come your way but you can only control what you do with those opportunities. And here we are in the, the early days uh, of, of this opportunity, but I intend to make the very most of it and be the, the, the best general manager that I can be and the best general manager WWE's ever seen. And we are having so much fun with that on commentary. I, I was talking to Gravy saying your, your charisma from the first second you stepped into that ring on SmackDown as GM was there for all to see. And you quickly put Dominic Mysterio in his place and I'm a big fan of your dad. And then the following week, you know, kicking Adam Pierce out of the room. So, so Nick Aldis, the GM well, here, <laughs> hold him back. Oh, look, I, I, I've been I've been observing how things have been going. You know, the, the bloodline, you know, running roughshod over WWE, and certainly uh, all sorts of nefarious characters are having their input, you know, in into that. And obviously, look, as an executive, there's 
there's give and take. We have to we have to be willing to uh, adapt to guys who are very important to WWE, like Roman Reigns and like the Usos, like a Cody Rhodes or any number of important people. But uh, there also comes a time where you define clear boundaries and you and you you make it known that you know that your show is is going to fall under your purview and your rules. And uh, I thought, look, the best thing to do at this point is to make a statement uh, that, that for these, these shenanigans, you know, they're only going to keep getting worse and, until somebody takes a stand and puts their foot down. So that's what I did. And uh, maybe I overstepped, but uh, hey, the most important thing is that I made a statement and showed everybody exactly who Nick Aldis is as far as uh, how he's going to run things over on the blue brand, the number one brand in all the sports entertainment. Oh, I love it. You'll get no argument from us. Certainly not. Nick, I'm excited at the prospect of you as GM. Uh, I promise you, I'm saying this on the podcast so that I don't forget and my producers don't forget. We will have you back sooner than later. I'm not going to put you back in the pool. I want to get to the meat <laughs> of your story. Uh, there, there's so damn much to get to. This is really interesting. And I, it, my, my goal here is to, to show the listeners that, in fact, you are extremely overqualified for the role in which you find yourself. You paid your dues. You've, you've got to sit with some of the greatest minds in the business. I think this is an exciting time for SmackDown. It's an exciting time for WWE. And uh, you are always welcome here on After the Bell. And hell, I think I'm technically under your employ now, so you can tell me when you want to do After the Bell. I think that's, that's how it true. works. I, I mean, I'm glad that you've I'm glad you brought that up because it would have been very uncomfortable and embarrassing for me to have to tell you that, you know, on your <laughs> show. But don't get don't, don't worry don't worry, Corey. I I, st- I think of this as your show. You know, I'm I'm simply overseeing the entire operation. As well, far I, as I uh, appreciate that down. greatly. Where uh, where can the WWE universe find you on social media? Uh, at Nick Aldis on Instagram and at Real Nick Aldis uh, on X. Um, I'm verified on both, so uh, check it out. And um, yeah, you'll, you'll no, see a lot more of me article. very, very soon. Yes, I sir. absolutely love it. Well, Nick, thank you for your time, man. You are always welcome. Looking forward to the future. Make sure you are following us at After the Bell WWE on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find me at WWE Graves. You can find KP at Kev underscore Egan. That is, of course, assuming he ever finds a hotel with reasonable Wi-Fi. Uh, make sure you're listening for free wherever you get your podcast. Just search After the Bell and hit the follow button so you never miss an episode Full episodes of ATB are available on the official WWE YouTube channel each and every Monday. Go out of your way this week. You've got to see the jawline on Nick Aldis. It's even better on YouTube than it is on television, I promise. Uh, We'll be back next week with more wisdom, more vitriol. The episode we never thought we'd make it to, 200, episode 200 of ATB. Next week, we got a huge, very, very special surprise for you, and I will not say any more than that. See you next week.